0: Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Erica Toussaint a Baha'i whose great-grandfather, Howard Colby Ives, was a Unitarian minister who became a Baha'i in 1912. I started the interview by asking Erica where she grew up and what was it like growing up
1: there. Well, I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but we moved around a lot when I was a child. So growing up, when you think about growing up someplace, actually, uh, we settled in near Portland, Oregon, when I was in the first grade, and I spent the rest of my school time there. That's where I think about when I think about growing up. You know, I was born in 1947, so I was growing up in the 50s and the early 60s, and I lived down a road that I walked about a quarter of a mile to catch a, a school bus in the morning and uh, in kind of a country setting and spent my childhood riding horses and training horses and growing a garden and doing what kids do. Mm-hmm. We were the only Baha'is in our whole county at the time. And so I was the only Baha'i at school. Mm-hmm. At that time, for some reason, I found, took that as a point of pride rather than feeling left out mm-hmm. uh, because nobody had ever heard of it. Uh, nobody had ever heard of the Baha'i faith at that time. Whenever you said you were a Baha'i, people looked at you blankly, maybe confused with B'nai B'rith or something like that. Mm-hmm. But my friends all knew I was a Baha'i, and... They liked the fact that I brought goodies during our holiday season. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And gradually, as we got older, they went with me to summer schools and youth conferences, and some of my friends became Baha'is in high school.
0: So when did your parents become Baha'i?
1: Well, I come from a long line of Baha'is. My mother grew up in the faith, and she's the granddaughter of Howard Colby Ives, who was the first Baha'i in our family. and. He was a Unitarian minister that met Abdu'l-Bahá when Abdu'l-Bahá came to this country.
0: Abdu'l-Bahá being?
1: The son of the founder of the faith, Mm Baha'u'llah. In fact, he wrote a book about it. So anyone that's interested in how a Unitarian minister becomes a Baha'i back in 1912 could read that book. It's called Portals to Freedom by Howard Colby Ives. Okay. And his only daughter, my grandmother, was a Baha'i, and my gran- so and my mother and all of her siblings were also Baha'is. So on that side of the family, uh, there's Baha'i was generations back. Mm. On my father's side, he was born in Austria and was Jewish. And when Hitler invaded Austria, my father tells the story that he was in the opera house his favorite place to be in Vienna, on a Saturday. And he went into the matinee, and life was normal. And when he came out, some hours later, the troops had invaded, and the Jews were required to wear armbands. He was 18 at the time, and his mother kind of smuggled him out of the country. He tried to come to the U.S., and when he got to Ellis Island, he wasn't able to enter because he didn't have the right kind of paperwork or whatever it was that they required at the time and in the 30s when this happened the jews were being told they could either go back to europe or they could go to cuba or to the dominican republic and he flipped a coin and ended up in cuba and some months later his mother wanted to send a gift of some neckties to him and a friend of hers was coming on a on a ship that would be stopping briefly in cuba and so she sent the neckties via that friend the friend ran into a Bahai on the ship, a woman named Millie Collins, who gave her some Bahai literature. And when the friend delivered the neckties to my father in Cuba, she said to him, "You might be interested in this young man. It's not for me, but it might be for you." And she handed him the ties and the literature. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and he read it and was interested and There was a Baha'i pioneer, an early settler in Cuba, living on the island, and somehow or another my dad connected with him, studied the faith, and eventually became a Baha'i. So by the time he came to this country, he was already a Mm Baha'i. And so I grew up in a Baha'i home with parents who were both already Baha'is by the time I was born. Mm
0: -hmm. How old was your father when he became a Baha'i? I
1: I think he was 19 or 20. Mm -hmm. So young. And when he came to the States, he he stayed at a boarding house, which was all rented by Baha'is. All the rooms in the boarding house were rented by Baha'is. And my mother and grandmother were living in that boarding house at the time, and that's how they met. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So after, I guess it was primary school, you left the Portland area or what?
1: No, I graduated from high school here and mm-hmm. then went to Lake Forest College in Illinois.
0: And what did you study there?
1: Psychology. Mm-hmm. And Lake Forest is only about 20 miles north of the Baha'i House of Worship in Wilmette, Illinois. And I chose it partly by its location, because we only have one house of worship in the country, and it happens to be located in the heart of the country. And so that was one of the considerations for my choosing that college. Uh-huh.
0: What were your other considerations?
1: Small liberal arts school mm-hmm. and not much else. I mean, I went, started, I went to college in 1965, so... Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I wasn't career-driven. I just wanted a good liberal arts education.
0: Mm-hmm. And so what happened after college?
1: I worked in Chicago, and then I worked in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I went back to my roots for a few years, met and married my husband, and then we moved to Harlan, Kentucky, deep in the heart of Appalachia. Uh, it's right next door to Hazard County. Mm-hmm. When we moved into Harlan, they had just passed a garbage law. And the garbage law was it's now required to have your garbage picked up or you have to take it to the landfill. And people were outraged because back there they were used to throwing their garbage into the ravines and the spring floods would wash it all away. And no one understood, In this is early 70s, 1972, mm-hmm. nobody in the hills and hollers of the uh, Appalachians understood why they had to pick up their garbage when we had a perfectly good system in place. Yeah. So. <laughs> so it was it was like going to another country. Mm-hmm. We lived there for a few years while my husband was a student at the at a school there, and I learned a lot about the Appalachian culture and loved living amongst people who really they had really had their own language, their own customs.
0: And that was the reason you were there, is because your husband was going to a certain school.
1: We had wanted to combine his schooling with service to the faith, and so we at that time they. We're encouraging Baha'is to go to areas where there were no Baha'is, and there were no Baha'is anywhere in Appalachia. And so the the school and the Baha'i need were a good match, and so that's why we ended up there.
0: And did you work when you were there, when you arrived? I did.
1: I was a social service counselor and actually a psychiatric social worker during that time, doing home visits and helping people recover helping the families recover when they had someone who needed to be institutionalized for mental illness and then helping those patients in their reentry back into family life and normal living. I remember making a home visit one time to a woman whose son was in the state hospital. And so I had been sent out to kind of assess the situation and consult with her about his possible return. People there are very hospitable, and I was... Uh, went into her little tiny tiny little kind of a cabin just two rooms basically and they had added on a bathroom and she was very proud of that because many people had outhouses at that time after we had ch- chatted for a little bit i was looking for the outhouse and she proudly announced that they had an indoor and showed me to this room and when i went in and closed the door and looked at, at the facility in the room there was a toilet, but I was looking through the hole of the toilet into the creek below. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, that woman made the best apple crumble bread I've ever eaten in my life, and she mm. gave me her recipe before I left. <laughs> yeah, <So. laughs> yeah. And, and she was so sweethearted and so mm. proud. That area at that time was a little bit like the Wild West. My husband was in nursing school, and... When he was working in the emergency room, he'd come home from work and he'd say, we had a patient in today who accidentally shot himself, and he put that in quotation marks. And then Mm. usually within a day or two, the guy who did it would Mm. come in with an accidental, (laughs) having accidentally Uh, shot himself. They had their own code of law. As I said, wonderful, warm-hearted souls.
0: And how long were you there?
1: We were in the Appalachians for about five or six years. We actually moved to the edge of the Appalachians and lived at Berea College for a few years. So we still had maintained connection with the Appalachian society culture, but we were out a little bit farther, a little bit closer to civilization.
0: And what were you doing there?
1: Well, my husband was finishing school, and I was working at the university. I was a dorm director in their big women's freshman dorm. Both my kids were born during that time. So being a dorm director with a baby and went on the way was a great, it was a lot of fun because the kids loved the whole process. They liked coming and sort of checking out my daughter to go play with her. (laughs) And they watched the pregnancy and had lots of questions all the way through until my second child was born. Anyway, so my husband was finishing up school and I was working in the dorm to help give us a place to live and give us income while he was a student.
0: What happened after your husband finished school?
1: Well, he went to work for that same college, and we moved out of the dorm into a home nearby. And by then, the Baha'i community in Berea was beginning to grow, and this was in the mid-'70s, and there was a lot of Baha'i growth taking place all in that area. So we were part of a beginning, growing Baha'i community, serving on its first local assembly and its first local Baha'i institution in that area. And I was serving on a statewide committee at the time that was, Focused on the development of the Bahai community all over the state of Kentucky.
0: How long did you stay in Kentucky after that?
1: Uh, a few more years. We mm. left Kentucky and headed back to the Northwest, which is where I now live. In the late seventies, we got arrived in, in Portland in uh, August of nineteen seventy nine. So we were in the Kentucky in very, those two different towns in Kentucky from seventy two until seventy nine.
0: And what were the circumstances that had you leave?
1: Well, I think my husband had kind of outgrown that school, and we were wanting to head back to more familiar territory mm-hmm. and actually prepared to leave the country because we had wanted to do some international Baha'i service. And so uh, we headed back to my home base uh, where my parents lived, where my father lived, and settled here, and then a couple of years later went pioneering to Grenada in the West Indies.
0: What did you and your husband do there?
1: Well, he worked as a nurse in the hospital, and it was very difficult to get a work permit. So, and my And our children were only five and eight at the time, and so I was happily staying home being a mother and serving as a volunteer in the community. And there was a lot of growth there of the Baha'i community in Grenada and lots of needs in the community for consolidation of the community and development and teaching. I remember the first night we arrived, my husband had gone ahead and had found a job and had rented the only house he could find. And when we got there, it was late at night by the time we got to this house. The house was up a rutted road. They referred to these little inlets back into the little mountains there in Grenada as gaps, up the gap it was called. And so we went up this rutted, dirt road with two kids and all the luggage and tired and got to the house. And as we went up the stairs and into the main part of the house, the house was really dirty. hadn't been cleaned in a long time, so layers of dust and layers and layers of sawdust from termites Mm -hmm. in the ceilings and in the floor. And I remember walking and turning on the light and looking around at this. It was kind of like a, a house might feel if it had just been abandoned for a long time cobwebs and dust and an uncared for environment and here I was with two small children and tired from the journey yeah. and my, I must admit my heart sank as we were exploring and the house was very it wasn't set up very well you had to go down some very steep stairs into an unlit basement to get to the shower and to the kitchen so it felt very primitive living mm-hmm. and as I was standing there kind of in shock I heard from the dark night because of course there were no streetlights, I heard a woman's voice calling out saying, good night. In the West Indies, you greet someone by the time of day. So you say, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night. And that means hello, uh, which I didn't know at the time. But so she's calling out good night, good night in that lovely West Indian lilt. And I called out to her and in came the woman who turned out to be my across the road neighbor, a woman named Miss B. And she had a tray in her hand with some hot water, some instant coffee, and some sugar and cream, and some cups. And she came in and to welcome us and to bring tea, which is what they called anything served hot in the evening. And she poured it out and mixed up the coffee for us, mixed up local cocoa for the girls, and she looked, took one look at the house and clucked in dismay and said she'd be right back tomorrow morning and help me clean it up. Here I was in that strange culture, strange place, another country, and being welcomed by a loving human being who was looking out for me. And I felt that way the whole time we lived in Grenada. It's a small country, so everyone knows everybody's business. And if you don't have, if you're not hiding your business from anyone, that's a very reassuring environment to live in because you know your children are safe, you know that you'll be taken care of if you have any needs, you know that you can assist and take care of others. The next morning, Miss B. showed up as soon as she saw any movement in the house, and she was all ready to work. She had a kerchief around her hair, and she had brought local cleaning implements and a special kind of broom they used, and she was ready to go at it. And so, of course, I rolled up my sleeves to help her, yeah. and she was very surprised that this white woman was going to work side by side with her even though I hadn't hired her she wasn't you know she had just come over neighbor in a neighborly way to help but she was quite surprised and by the end of the afternoon when we'd gotten the house cleaned up and put back to order she looked at me and, and she smiled and she said she sort of gave a pronouncement about me she pr- pronounced me not a fussy woman <laughs> Which was the highest compliment I think I could have been given by her, because Mm -hmm. what it meant was I was a regular person and that she knew that I wasn't going to be putting on some sort of airs. That's sweet. She became a very dear friend and was actually the first person who uh, became a Baha'i in our little gap. And I used to go over in the evenings and visit with her and her grandchildren. And the houses are small in Grenada, so all the grandkids, a whole pile of little small children, ranging in age from maybe two to seven, would pile up on the bed with their grandmother, and I would join the pile with them uh, after my kids were in bed. And we would laugh, and we would tell stories, and it was almost like a, a pile of kittens with the with the mother curled up on this bed. And then gradually the, the children would fall asleep, and Miss B and I would chat. And it was just a very warm, loving atmosphere, and one that you could repeat really anywhere in the world, because when there's love like that, it doesn't matter if there are cultural differences. It just becomes a fun explorer, kind of like a puzzle to solve to understand people's cultural differences. And Miss B very quickly was comfortable enough to ask me about my ways and comfortable enough to instruct me in the Grenadian ways, which was, of course, very useful because if you don't know what you're doing in a culture, you can insert inserting your foot in your mouth, so to speak, pretty easily culturally.
0: Right. So what were some of the questions she asked about your ways?
1: With cooking ways and when we ate food, and they, they ate different things for breakfast than I would have expected. And we were on a very limited budget, so, and we didn't have a refrigerator. So she was kind of puzzled about how, what we were eating and why. She did have a refrigerator, and she used to let us store cheese and things. In that culture, unfortunately, I think a sort of legacy left from slavery, it was not common, really, for women to be married although many women had children, and the children often had, each child had a different father. And she was very curious about our marriage, about my views on marriage, about marriage in the United States, and why it was more commonly accepted, to all of that, because the core of a married couple building the family unit was one that is, was unfortunately the, the exception rather than the rule in, in Grenada, and I think in, in many places in the West Indies.
0: And how long were you in Grenada?
1: We were there for just a little over a year. Unfortunately, we had to leave because we ran out of money. We ran out of money because my husband couldn't get a job that would pay enough for us to be able to afford rent, and we had to buy food, whereas many locals grew their own food or, or, or had families that had little farms up in the mountains and things. When he was hired, they hired him as a, as a staff nurse in a hospital at local nursing wages, which was not enough for us to cover our monthly expenses. And we had come down with savings, which we thought would be able to just use for the emergencies and that sort of thing, but we had to use money from our savings every month. Steve was a very talented uh, nurse educator. He worked in the States in the nursing schools. So that was what he was hoping to be able to do, and that would have afforded us a a living wage. And as the months passed and it became clear that even even there, working as a nurse, when students would be sent in, he was such a good teacher that even the nurses were starting to ask, well, why isn't he at the nursing school? And openings came and went, and finally one of the the head nurses that he worked for asked the Ministry of Health why they weren't hiring Nurse Toussaint, as they referred to him. And when we were living there in Grenada, it was under communist rule. And uh, while the communist government was quite favorable to the Baha'is because they saw that we shared so many Uh, of the same kinds of goals. So Baha'is could freely develop and do what they did there on the island. There was, of course, a lot of suspicion towards the U.S., and anybody from the U.S. they were suspicious about. And although they knew we had come, we were quite open about coming to Grenada for Baha'i work, still the Ministry of Health wasn't certain, and they they basically, the message came back, they didn't really know why he had left his good-paying job in the States. And the implication was maybe he was a member of the CIA or something. And so when it became clear that we weren't going to be able to earn enough money, make enough money to live, and when our savings ran out, then we had to come back. Funny enough, or kind of oddly enough, I guess I would say, 10 days later, the prime minister of Grenada was assassinated, and the communist government was overthrown. And had we actually been able to stay those 10 days, probably within another month we would have been able to, to get a job that would have paid a living wage, and I might still be there in Grenada.
0: So you left Grenada, and where did what happened after oh, that?
1: I came back and settled in the Northwest and mm. uh, have been here pretty much ever since. Mm. Although when people say, where do you live, and I say, I live in Portland, they say, oh, how are, how are things in Portland? And I my answer these days is, I have no idea because I'm hardly ever home.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, what keeps you from home?
1: I travel. I'm gone almost every week, actually. I travel all over the, the country and sometimes out of the country. Mostly for Baha'i service. Since I serve on our National Spiritual Assembly, the National Governing Body of the U.S. for the Baha'is, and my life is, I'm at the stage of my life where I'm free to do this, I try to say yes to the invitations that come in from all over the country. Because it's good for a member of the National Spiritual Assembly to be just out and about in the community. It helps me get a sense for what's happening with the Baha'is, and they get a chance to get to know one of their nine members who serve on this body so that's what i do i mean i do everything from speaking at conferences to uh, youth retreats to teaching at our baha'i uh, summer schools and family retreats and uh, whatever it is that that mm-hmm. i could do accompanying the friends the baha'is in in their homes carrying out the plans that they have
0: so when you returned to portland how old were your kids
1: they were nine and six so they re-entered the schools In retrospect, it was probably a good thing that we did come back because my youngest daughter had just started kindergarten, and she was in full-fledged rebellion after three days because the system there was one of, it was kind of based on the old school, learn by rote, do what the teacher says, and otherwise you get a ruler on the knuckles or worse. Because in the West Indies, the the concept of punishing children is one of being rather harsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I think it's a legacy from from the days of slavery because it wasn't unusual to see a parent wailing on a child out in the street. The louder the, and the more obvious it was, the better it seemed. In fact, another funny story, when we were living there, my kids, as they began to make friends with the neighborhood kids, there was discussion about punishment because we often saw kids being beaten by their parents in the street. My kids had made it clear to their friends that we didn't spank them, and no one could understand that. <laughs> um, the, the Grenadian kids thought they, that my kids were the luckiest kids in the world, but people didn't really believe it. And remember, I said, everybody knows everybody's business. <laughs> and so one day, my five-year-old, my youngest, disobeyed me in some way. i have forgotten what it was. I think I asked her to come in, and she didn't, and it was time to come in for a meal or whatever it was. So when I went out to where she was and... I said, it's, it's time for you to come in, and she said no, and I, so I picked her up, and I said, well, then you're going to have to go to your room, and that was the biggest punishment for my kids was they had to go sit on their beds. It was a time out, and she started to just scream bloody murder, <laughs> and all the neighbors came. They heard her because, of course, you could hear the, the the sound echoing, and everybody came, and it wasn't. In that uh, culture, it's it's not really considered impolite to look into people's windows. (laughs) And so as I was carrying her, screaming into her room, the neighbors were crowding around, looking, watching in the windows and talking amongst themselves and clucking and back and forth because they were sure that I was beating her or was going to beat her. And then when I didn't, I just put her on her bed and told her she had to stay there until she calmed down. I could hear all the neighbors shaking their head, saying, you know, why is this child carrying on so? You know, our mother hasn't done anything. <laughs> no one understood. <laughs> and I, I remember thinking to myself at the time, there's a statement in the Baha'i Writings that talks about the discipline of children, and it says that the mother should encourage the child. When she sees that he has done something good, she must praise him and applaud him and reward him for that good act. But if she sees that he has a, the slightest undesirable trait, she must punish him and use means of reason, even to the extent of a slight verbal chastisement. And so I remember thinking to myself as I walked out of that room and heard all the neighbors discussing this whole thing and not being able to make any sense of why my child had been so upset by simply being told to be in her room. I thought, well, you know, it's it just shows that Whatever the level of punishment is, if the big stick of punishment, so to speak, is a slight verbal chastisement, and that's what you use, and you only use it occasionally when you need to, even to the extent of that, then it will have as great an impact on a child as what somebody else does when they want to beat that child. And it sort of confirmed the parenting advice I had always followed from the Baha'i teachings because it certainly was as upsetting to my child. (laughs) She was making as much noise as any of the grenadian kids who had much more severe (laughs) punishment anyway she didn't respond very well to the corporal punishment in the classroom and her teacher was very critical of her handwriting she was a five-year-old she was just starting Mm -hmm. school and she hadn't been to preschool and so she was not going to go back it was a good thing i suppose that we came back here because she fared much better in in an educational system like ours
0: so, did you ever return to your field once the kids got older, or did you? Well, pretty much- you know,
1: I really—I I made the decision early on, in consultation with my husband, not to try and pursue a career. We felt that it was important to have one of the parents in the home, and also that that time—if you—if the mother is not working, she has time for volunteer work. She has time to create that home. She has time for other service as well as taking care of the family. I never felt that that was demeaning to me. I didn't feel like I was losing my place as an equal partner in the world if I stayed in the home. And, of course, I wasn't just limited to being in my house, but I loved being able to volunteer in the schools. I loved having the the time to be able to actually give service in the Baha'i community And I felt that I could do a better job as a parent. And I was confirmed in that when my kids started into junior high and high school because I found children have as great a need for their parents actually to be home during those years as they do when they're growing up. It's a different kind of need, but it's still a need. So occasionally I would work to earn extra money, but honestly I would choose my job by how close it was to my house Mm -hmm. and how well the hours matched my family's needs and I would just pick the highest-paying job that had no responsibility (laughs) during uh, those times, just because I really felt that I could use the same kind of drive. The energy and the ambition, if you might, or or the the will and the excitement and the creativity that people put into a career, I found that I had plenty of outlets for that sort of energy in what I was doing that wasn't in a career position.
0: Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of mothers who would love to have been able to do that if they could uh, afford yeah,
1: it. Yeah, yeah, and we, we chose to live a simpler life, mm-hmm. and we chose to to live within the means of one income. It was a conscious choice, and it mm-hmm. meant that we didn't drive the new cars, and we didn't do other things that people might do if they had more money. But I don't think we, I never felt we were impoverished. Some people don't have that opportunity.
0: You recently went to Japan. Mm-hmm. What, what did you do there?
1: I was visiting my oldest daughter and her husband. Uh, they were married a year and a half ago and I had not had the opportunity to visit them. They live in Japan. She mm-hmm. teaches English. Actually, he they both teach English. She said, "Mom, we're not going we're leaving Japan in another 6 months. If <laughs> you don't come visit us, you're going to lose the opportunity and I want you to visit us in in, in our home here." So, that was the that was a motivating factor uh, yeah. for that particular visit. It was a wonderful visit. I'm not much of a tourist, so right. people say, "Well, how was Japan?" And I say, "Well, I guess it was very much Japan, but that wasn't—I didn't spend all my time going and seeing the sights, and I did see a few things, but yeah. mostly I had—I was interested in meeting some of the Japanese people and mm-hmm. spending time with my daughter and son-in-law."
0: My son said the same thing to me. He had lived in Prague for several years. And he knew he was leaving soon, and he said, if you guys don't come out here and visit me, you're going to lose an opportunity. So (laughs) we went out there to visit him. So you say you're traveling now a lot around the country. That's taking up most of your time, you'd say?
1: It takes up all my weekends and the travel to and from on those weekends. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if it would take up most of my time. A lot of my time is taken by the work of the National Assembly. And then, of course, when one comes back from a trip, there's always things (laughs) in the household that (laughs) demand attention.
0: (laughs) Sure. Do you have any plans for the future?
1: You know, I'm living the kind of life that lets the future solve itself, so Mm -hmm. to speak. My life is not directed by what I particularly think I should, can, or ought to do, but more by the service that I'm called to at the time of my life that I'm in, and so right now I have this service on the National Spiritual Assembly, which takes a fair amount of time, and my own sense of the need for this member of the National Assembly to be widely available to the Baha'is and to assist with the work of the faith all over the country, and so that's what's driving it right now, if there comes a time or when there comes a time that I'm not serving in that capacity, then I think the next step will unfold. People tell me I should write a book. Actually, people tell me I should write two different books. Currently, at the time, I don't have the time and haven't organized thinking to do that, but that that might happen in the future. I don't know.
0: What two books would that be?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oftentimes, when I go and speak, at conferences or at uh, some of the retreat centers that we have, I'm asked to talk about variations on a theme of strengthening unity in the community, and the family, in the workplace. So I have thought a lot about this topic and done a lot of research in the Baha'i writings about it. And I think because I have the personality style that was delighted when I discovered psychology as a major, I'm, I've always been interested in why people do what they do and, My question in college was, is it nature or nurture? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think mostly because of my study of the Baha'i teachings, although you're born with certain capacities and certain tendencies and certain talents, each one of us can play a a role in our own development. And that's what I've been thinking about my whole life. And when I have shared these insights that have come from my own study of the Baha'i teachings on how we are in the world, who we are in the world, how the world works, if you look at it from a spiritual standpoint instead of regarding it from the material standpoint, then kind of everything changes in the way you move through the world.
0: Can you give an example?
1: Well, okay, so for instance, a Baha'i will tell you, if you ask them, what is the purpose of life? All Baha'is probably will quote to you, from one of their obligatory prayers, the short prayer that we say at noon, that we were created to know and worship God. But that's the purpose of human beings. So I have always felt that most human beings don't think of themselves walking around the planet as that being their main goal. But when I look at what the Baha'i teachings say about the world, about God, about the nature of man, <laughs> then what I see is this picture that kind of unfolds so, for instance, I understand from the Baha'i teachings that human beings have a dual nature, that we are both spiritual in nature and material in nature. And, you know, you've probably seen those little cartoons that say sometimes have a, a little devil on one shoulder and a little angel on the other shoulder whispering yeah. into that person's ear.
0: Right.
1: Well, from those in a comic way, in my mind, illustrate the dynamic tension inside every human where one part of us wants to do the good, wants to rise to justice, wants to be humble, wants to be self-effacing or put others first, all that sort of thing. And then there's another side of us that is focused in the material world and that thinks that the way to get ahead in the world or the way to be happy or to feel secure is to succeed materially. And there's nothing against material success. That's not what this is about. It's more about really what reality is, because my understanding is that that what's real is the spiritual realm, not the material realm. Again, because the Baha'i teachings say that the the material world is actually an illusion, that this world that seems so solid is just a, a shadowy reflection of the real realm of the absolute, the spiritual realm. And the Baha'i teachings remind us that everything in the material world changes. The best things change and the worst things change. So you can eat a wonderful meal one night, and it's the best food you've ever had in the most beautiful environment you've ever been in. And the next morning you're still hungry. You wake up hungry. Nothing in the material world can satisfy. Every kid learns that when they get the first toy they really, really, really wanted. And then a few months later, it's cast aside, or if you, even a few years later, in the case of some of those classic toys like <laughs> well, Lego, still,
0: 40-year-olds I... who get cars.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> no, no the you car's the not... latest
1: phone, and then you want the next latest right, phone. Right, <laughs> the car's not
0: so exciting anymore.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I think that's the point, that we have this competing view of what's real, and we also have the experience of life that... Eventually begins to make us jaded about the material world. So that's one piece. That's one example is that, so if you know that the reality then is the spiritual and not the material, then it gives you a much more realistic view of the, the, your material encounters. Here's another example. There's a statement in the Baha'i Writings that I find to be very helpful in my making my choices about what I'm going to do about something, anything. This statement says, All the sorrow and the grief that exists come from the world of matter. The spiritual world bestows only the joy. If we suffer, it is the outcome of material things. And all these trials and troubles come from this world of illusion. So once a person understands that, and this is a pretty profound statement, although it sounds kind of simple. It gives you a measuring stick so that you can know whether anything that's happening and your response to it is material or spiritual. And for me, trying to be a spiritually developed person, it helps me sort out those things that are not so obviously part of this material world. So, for instance, if someone says something that's hurtful to you and it's someone that you love, you might think that... that it's all part of that spiritual relationship of love that you have with that individual, a dear friend, let's say. And yet, knowing this definition that all the sorrow and grief that exists come from the world of matter, the spiritual world bestows only the joy, you can then realize that that hurtful thing, whatever it was, is just a part of the It's the material aspect of your relationship. It's that thing that changes it all the time, that, that is really an illusion that's not real. It's not the real part of your friendship. It's not the real basis of your relationship. And so you can put it in a different perspective. Then you might, if you didn't understand this concept and weren't applying it in your relationship, and then you would think, oh, my goodness, something terrible has just happened. Our world has changed. My friend doesn't like me anymore, or whatever it might be. Or I'm going to get mad back at them, and you get involved in this whole string of repercussions that are based on how you... Perceived the importance of that initial act where they were unkind, and of course, there's other things. I mean, this is this is you ask for an example, and it's hard to give an example without sort of sketching the whole a whole picture because there's two there's there's always two ways to see everything. And what I've learned is if you realize that whenever you're unhappy, you're involved in the material world. For me, it lets me kind of emotionally shrug my shoulders a little bit and say, "Oh, okay." I see. Well, this will probably change. <laughs> it's not the, the foundation of my sense of security in the world, and so I can, I can move on. So that's an example. I don't know if it was very coherent, because it's hard <laughs> to pick something out of what usually takes a weekend.
0: So what would be the other book if you wrote one?
1: The other book that people are encouraging me to do now is a book on my great-grandfather, And the reason they're urging me to do it is because I've just in the last few months been doing some research in the Baha'i National Archives because his personal papers have just been cataloged and released, and I was asked to do a presentation on him, and so I thought maybe I better get in and see what was there. And all kinds of wonderful things have turned up. There's 13 boxes of his personal papers, and most of which have not been published, including Letters to Abdul Baha from Howard and from Abdul Baha. Some of those letters from Abdul Baha were published in in that book I mentioned, Portals to Freedom. But I found another one that none of us knew about, and a lot of correspondence back and forth. Almost thirty letters from Howard to Shoghi Effendi, the Guardian of the Baha'i Faith, Abdul Baha's grandson, who was appointed to be the center of the Covenant in what he called the Guardian of the Faith. In when Abdul Baha died in 1921. So there was correspondence between Howard and Shoghi Effendi all throughout the rest of Howard's life. He died in 1941. So 29 letters from him to Shoghi Effendi, which were most of them long letters that were very descriptive of what he was doing to serve the Baha'i cause at that time, and 22 answers from Shoghi Effendi to him, some of which were fairly long letters, and none of which I've ever seen published anywhere. So, And that was just box 1 folders 1 2 and 3 <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> out of the 13 boxes we discovered another book that had been written we discovered that a manuscript that hadn't been published and there are folders and folders of letters between Howard and his wife who often were serving in different towns they would they were traveling and teaching in different places and when they were separated they wrote to each other almost every day and i didn't know anything about the nature of their relationship but it turns out they loved each other dearly. And so they, these are love letters with a description of the day's activities in between the loving opening and the loving close. If, if you were to write a biographer, uh, biography, this is a biographer's dream because it's like mm-hmm. a journal almost, only even more so. So that material, people hope, will be in a book. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, what I'm going to do is put it up on a wiki-style website and let everybody have a chance to explore it and hopefully digitize it because it's all handwritten documents that I've been scanning. I don't know if it'll be me that writes the book or somebody who's even better and has more time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How did your great-grandfather run into the Baha'i faith in the first place?
1: I told you he was a Unitarian minister, and he and some of his parishioners, I uh, had decided that they were going to open another church that would have us have its own feel. They called it the Church of the Brotherhood, and they wanted to open it in New York City in the Bowery area to serve the disadvantaged. And they were hoping that the more advantaged and the disadvantaged can sort of come together. He had a kind of a vision of the oneness of mankind. And this friend of his, who one of the friends from his church who was working with him on that project and it had helped him open the Brotherhood Church, bumped into some Baha'is and began to share what he was learning with Howard. And then it, that was like 1911. And then when Abdu'l-Baha came to this country, this friend of Howard's kind of insisted that Howard come and hear Abdu'l-Baha speak and people who read the book will will have a chance to read this story in more detail, but the short of it is Howard actually hadn't wanted to go and hear Abdu'l-Baha speak because he, unbeknownst to his friend, he was in the middle of his own religious crisis, Mm -hmm. and he didn't want to kind of confuse the issue by adding in new teachings from some Eastern religion (laughs) to the mix because he was trying to sort things out within his own theological training. But his friend insisted, and then finally when Howard agreed, he said to him, You know, I'm a preacher. I give sermons every week. If I was really going to benefit from this, I would need time alone with Abdu'l-Bahá. And his friend said, Well, that's probably not going to happen, because Abdu'l-Bahá, everybody wants to be with him, and he always chooses to speak through a translator because he had limited English. And so his friend had said, It's not going to happen, but still... He twisted his arm and and insisted that he come, hear him just once, just once. (laughs) So in the book, people will read the story of how when he arrived there at the Hotel Ansonia, he was standing at the back of the room. The meeting was in a large ballroom, and so there were lots of people there. And most people, of course, were really eager to be there. And so there was the happy hubbub of chatter amongst people, as you would hear in a crowd. And he was standing at the back of the room looking outside, kind of wishing he was down on the sidewalk with the people walking by and not going to be sitting through this meeting. And all of a sudden a hush fell over the room. And he turned around to see why. And across the room, Abdu'l-Bahá had just come in through one of the doorways, and he was flanked by his two translators. And he was looking through the crowd. It appeared he was looking for someone. And then finally he gestured with his hand. And Howard, it took three times of his gesturing and before Howard realized the gesture was aimed at him. Uh, and then they did a little sign language, who me, yeah, you kind of gesturing. And so he threaded his way through the crowd. When he got to the doorway, Abibaha grabbed his hand and led him out of the ballroom across the hall into a smaller room. And as they walked through the doorway of that second room, Abdu'l-Bahá, with his hand, dismissed the translators. And Howard writes about how surprised they looked, because this never happened. But they were dismissed, and the door was closed, and there they were, just two of them. Abdu'l-Bahá led him over to a chair, to two chairs that were sitting facing each other by a window. And they sat in those chairs, and not a word was uttered during this time. But Howard describes in the book how... They looked into each other's eyes, and Abdu'l-Bahá looked at Howard so deeply and with such love that he describes how he felt as if for the first time ever his own dear father was seeing him for who he really was and loved him. And this overpowering feeling of love coming from Abdu'l-Bahá and acceptance, was so strong that Howard was moved to his depths, and the tears began to puddle in his eyes and then to trickle down his cheeks. And then all of a sudden, Abdu'l-Bahá laughed, and he reached over with his thumbs and flicked the tears off Howard's cheeks, saying at the the same time something to the effect of, Now is not the time to cry. This is the day to be happy. And then he leapt up to, to his feet and scooped Howard up in a great big bear hug, murmuring to him, calling him his very dear son, and then took his hand and led him out of the room and back to the meeting hall to give the talk. And he says at the end of that section, he remarked that his life has never been the same since. Yeah, I can so that was really his in- introduction, was this powerful feeling of love. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, he would try to be wherever Abdu'l-Baha was, and he would go to whatever meetings he could, he Had access to ask lots of questions, Abdu'l-Bahá was very...
0: Available to him?
1: Very available to him, yeah. He invited him to go for walks with him, invited him to come up to Dublin, New Hampshire for a weekend when he was there, and all of that's recorded in that, in that book. He wrote Portals to Freedom about his time with Abdu'l-Bahá. Once he became a Baha'i, he became very dedicated, and he had to leave the ministry because we don't have ministers or clergy of any kind in the faith. And he dedicated his life to service to the cause. So what does a minister become once they're no longer a minister? And the needs of the, the Baha'i cause at that time were that we needed Baha'is traveling to teach the faith and to sort of open up new cities to, to the faith. So what he became was a traveling salesman. <laughs> and he never really had much money. I know this now even more so from reading the various letters between him and his wife. But that's what he chose to do because that was what the needs of the cause were at the time. And he travelled and taught the faith. In nineteen twenty one, he and his second wife, my great grandmother, his first wife, when he became a Baha'i, she divorced him and took oh, my really? grandmother away to Europe to get him away from her to get her away from his influence. And later he met and married another Baha'i a woman named Mabel Rice Ray. And there, that was the marriage that I was describing that I've discovered in these love letters to each other. And in 1921, they sold everything they had. And from 1921 until he died in 1941, they never had a home. They stayed in boarding houses, in hotels, sometimes with Baha'is. But they went wherever the cause needed them to be. And they each did whatever they could to earn money through sales of whatever particular company they worked for at the time. But their really whole focus and goal was to teach this new cause and to share the message of Baha'u'llah with the people in these various towns that they would go and visit. And they, they raised up Baha'i communities all down the eastern seaboard and then started working their way through the south. He died in 1941 in, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And she died a couple of years later in Memphis. So I come from a legacy of service, really. Yeah. And that sense of service has permeated the family so that's why you're finding it difficult when you say to say well what do you want what do you plan to do next <laughs> what are your plans <laughs> well my plans are to serve <laughs> and i don't know what that's going to look like
0: <laughs> well erica thank you so much
1: this has been fun
0: i hope you enjoyed that interview with erica Tucson, a bahai and the great granddaughter of howard colby ives a Unitarian minister who became a Baha'i in 1912. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
2: And all that I have is my life and my time And the feel of a hometown where I landed They're slipping away, I'll be empty-handed So all I can call these things my own I'm gonna give them to you I hold the earth in the palm of my hand so say the wise and the sages i've got nothing but i'm working god's land i've got the wealth of the ages wear the clothing of the common man doing the work of the angels time flies like fine grains of sand my life is a turn of the pages And I'll give it to you Cause I can't give away what isn't mine And all that I have is my life and my time and the feel of a hometown where I landed The slipping away I'll be empty handed So while I can call these things my own I'm gonna give them to you Shall pass empty-handed Into the hollow that is dark For those who speak no more It's only my life till it's ended And it's only what love demanded To give it to you It's like giving away what isn't mine can I really claim my life or my time Or even the hometown where I landed the Slipping away, I'll be empty-handed So while I can call these things my own I'm gonna give them to you And if I can call these things my own i have gotta to give them to you I really call these things my own.
0: This is WXOJLP Northampton, one oh three point three FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.